Would you all turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to John, chapter 21? John 21, uh, verse 4 is where we'll be starting. And in John 21, just to set the stage for you, uh, Jesus has already died by this point and then has risen from the dead. Uh, and Peter, his disciple Peter, and some of the other disciples have gone fishing throughout the night. And that's where we pick up, is, is, is there. And I'm going to read like 13 verses, so you'll have to stick with me here. But it's a really good story, uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll start in verse 4. Okay. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they, said, they answered him, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the large quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lamb. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we are grateful for your grace through your Son. Give us ears this morning to hear you speak in hearts, to believe and embrace and resolve for your glory. And we pray in and through your glorious Son. Amen. This week and next, I will be talking about experiencing and extending God's grace. And we'll look at two stories of people having encounters with Jesus and how they experience His grace so that they can extend it to others. And to communicate this amazing message about God's grace, Jesus told us a powerful and beautiful parable about a man with two sons, each lost in their own way. And last year, I rewrote this parable as a poem 
to help myself and others see it in a fresh way. And I think that uh, the part about the younger son would be a helpful beginning to this discussion on experiencing God's grace. So I want to read it to you. It goes like this. The man, young and restless, felt his heart shift. His discontent now turned to full-blown contempt. His life wasn't terrible, but something was wrong. His ambitions, his appetites squelched for too long. He said, Father, I can't think of anything worse than a life full of want and waiting. It feels like a curse. I want more than this work, than this family, this land. I long to see what is out there, to be my own man. So I must ask you one favor, and I think it's fair. Would you grant me this mercy and give me my share? As he spoke, his gaze drifted down toward his feet. A sign, his heart told him, of shame and retreat. So he lifted his face with a fresh swell of pride to look at his father straight in the eyes. Eyes that he noticed were now filled with tears. His father stood there quiet for what felt like years. And when he finally spoke, he sounded sad, loving, calm, forcing the young man to suppress some qualms He said, son, I release you. Take what you need, since you want my things, but you do not want me. We both know this life you want will not be free, but son, it will cost much more than you think. The son then took a week to liquidate assets and rode off optimistically into the sunset. He journeyed quite far to a whole different country and spent his wealth very quickly. The options were plenty. He thought, there's so much opportunity, I can always make more. Then the famine arose, and he stayed very poor. He took a job feeding pigs for a man of that country, a terrible job for a Jew, but he needed the money. He came to ache with such hunger that he longed to dine on the same food that he had been feeding the swine. He thought about everywhere that he'd rather be when his mind settled on a sweet memory of living at home, eating bread every night. Even the servants had plenty, and there wasn't a pig within sight. And suddenly, the young man came to his senses. He thought about how he could try to mend fences. I'll say, Father, my mind has finally come to. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but I long to be a hired servant. Would you treat me as one? And when he saw his home in the distance, he felt anxious and guilty. Then he noticed the man running toward him quite quickly. It looked like his father, but he thought, that that can't be. Such a dignified man would not run to see me. But it was indeed his father, running as fast as he could. And when he reached him, he hugged him and kissed him real good. And the warmth of his father took the son by surprise And he started his speech as he tried not to cry. He said, Father, my mind has finally come to. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father cut him off before he was done. He ordered his servants to bring the best robe and shouted with joy, My son has come home. Put a ring on his hand. Put some shoes on his feet. Tonight, let us celebrate. Tonight, let us eat. Prepare the best calf, the one fat and round, for this my son was lost, but now he's found. Rejoice, play some music, prepare a dance floor, for this my son was dead, but is alive now once more. 
Amen. What I love about that parable that Jesus gives us is the picture of the generous grace of God to restore broken failures and sinners far beyond their expectations. Christ restores and repurposes failures and sinners. And we see this powerfully in the life of Peter. I want you to see this morning that you may be the biggest failure, the biggest sinner, but Christ can call you to make an impact that is utterly disproportionate to who you are. That's a prayer that I have prayed regularly for a while now. It's not original to me, but it's adapted from the prayers of a a missionary named David Brainerd. And the prayer is this, Oh God, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. I love that prayer because I am so aware of how not great I am. But I know, I know how great God is. That He is very great and that He is so powerful that He can even use my little flawed life to make a difference for His glory that far exceeds who I am in and of myself. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Peter. Jesus restores Peter in grace. And He repurposes him in love. Jesus wanted to restore Peter after he's sinned in these terrible, shameful ways of denying him, which is an extraordinary act of grace. But it isn't cheap and easy grace, as we'll see. It's going to be painful for Peter. See, Jesus opens up the wounds of Peter's failure in order to heal them properly. Jesus designed this whole encounter with Peter to recall his failures. He calls Peter to a charcoal fire. Where did Peter deny that he was a follower of Jesus? Around a charcoal fire. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times, right? How many times did Peter deny that he was a follower of Jesus? Three times. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Talking about the disciples. Which seems like a strange question, right? How could Peter know if he loved Jesus more than the other disciples loved him? Of course he can't answer that question. But the point is, there was a time when he thought he could. In Matthew 26, when Jesus tells the other disciples that they're going to fall away when he's taken to the cross, Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Saying they might fall away, Jesus, but they aren't committed to you the way I am. They don't love you like I love you. And so here Jesus is not only confronting Peter's denials, but also his self-righteousness and pride that made him think he wouldn't and couldn't. Jesus is getting to the core of the issue so that he can cure him fully. He's getting to the sin under the sin and bringing it into the light so that true healing can happen. Because we generally want to hide our failures and our sins, right? And, and, and keep them in the dark. And it's easier to ignore that we have them that way. It's easier to deny that they've happened. But that's when they fester and become worse. Jesus makes us face them in order to move forward. And this hurts Peter. We see that in verse 17 where it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? It's painful to face our failures, but the Bible tells us that that, that this is important. It tells us that there's two types of grief when convicted over sin. 2 Corinthians 7 says that godly sorrow, the first kind of sorrow, brings repentance that leads to salvation. And leaves no regrets. 
But worldly sorrow, the second kind, brings death. One leads to freedom. One leads to bondage. And what's the difference? I think the difference is in what you're sorrowful about. Are you grieving over yourself? Or are you grieving over your Savior? Are you grieving that you failed Him and wronged Him and dishonored Him? Or are you grieving over how you haven't lived up to your own standards or grieving over the consequences that you face? When you grieve over Him, see this, when you grieve over Him, it can lead to freedom precisely because He can forgive you and will forgive you. But when your grief is self-centered, when you grieve over yourself, you're sucked into either self-righteousness or self-condemnation or self-pity, usually all of that. But with Peter, this was not self-pity. This was godly grief leading to repentance. And how do we know? Because look at the fishing miracle. That fishing miracle that started out this story in John 21. He begins this encounter, Jesus does, by calling the disciples as they're fishing and asking if they have any fish, right? And they say no. And he told them to cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And so they cast it. And now they weren't able to haul it in, right? Because of a large quantity of fish. And so Jesus... Uh, So John says to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Peter finds out that it's Jesus, he throws himself into the ocean to swim to him, to be with him as quickly as possible. But this isn't the first time Jesus performed this miracle for Peter. This is how he called Peter to be his disciple. If you remember back in the story, in Luke 5, Jesus was teaching people from Peter's boat, and then he tells him to let down his nets for a catch, and Peter's like, well, Master, we toiled all night and caught nothing, but... At your word, I'll let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Sound familiar? And their nets were breaking. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Same miracle, both times. But Peter reacts differently. The first time, he cowered and wanted distance. The second time, he wanted to be as close as possible, as quickly as possible. The difference is that now he had been humbled. And now he understood grace. Before, he was living in his own righteousness, trying to be his own God. And so when he came face to face with the real God, the true God in Jesus Christ, it revealed him for the fraud that he really was. Self-righteousness always leads to shame before the holiness of Christ. But when he was finally shown just how much of a failure he really is when living in his own strength, he realized that the only strength, the only righteousness that he ever had or ever will have is in Jesus Christ alone. And And then when the power and the holiness of Christ was revealed to him then, he didn't want to get away. He wanted to be close. He was finally relying on grace rather than on himself. And like Peter, we are called to live by grace. And if you want to know if you're living by grace or by self-righteousness, if you want to know if you really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, then ask yourself this question. When you fail, does it make you run from him? Or does it make you run to him? Do you hide or do you seek his face? 
If you don't understand the grace of our Savior, you will think that every failure makes God more and more disgusted with you, and you'll feel ashamed to talk to Him. You'll feel ashamed to live with Him and follow Him. But what He really wants is not for you to turn away, but to turn toward Him. If you can remember back to when you were a kid and you, and you really messed up and you think to yourself, many, myself included, have had this thought, oh man, I really messed up. My dad's going to kill me. I had that thought all the time. And whether it's justified or not, that's, we, we, that's the way we think. And then we bring that into our relationship with God. But the sonship that God calls us into through Jesus says, oh man, I really messed up. I need to call my dad. That's the difference. That's the Father He is to us. Because through faith, we are intimately and truly united to His perfect and beloved Son. So many Christians, too many, don't understand, who don't understand the gospel of grace think that Jesus is over there and we're over here and all of our sin is in between us. And so we, we get our prayer life down and we get a little bit closer. And we kick this bad habit and we get a little bit closer. But the truth is, the reality is, through faith, you're already over there. Or better yet, he's over here. The Bible says you are in him, with him. His arm is around you and you are accepted. And it's from this beautiful and powerful standpoint that we face our sins together with him. And it's it's from this standpoint that we can live sin as messengers of this incredible good news and live in relationships to others because understanding and experiencing God's grace allows us to extend that grace to others. And a community shaped by this grace, as I pray, this community continues to become, will be a space for people to be open and honest about being messed up. When we all admit our dependence upon the grace of God, we don't have to pretend like we have it all together. And we won't expect others to have it all together. And I think that is why Jesus is restoring Peter in front of the other disciples here instead of privately, because he's going to lead. He's going to be a leader in this community, a community that's going to be marked by experiencing and extending Christ's grace. So they need to see their leader who has failed so badly be restored so fully. They need to see him as just as much a recipient of grace as they are so that he can lead them to live in this grace. Some of you need to know that even though you have let Jesus down and let others down, you can be received and restored by Christ's grace. After King David, after King David's epic and destructive sin and failure, he wrote a song of repentance, Psalm 51. And in that song, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We must have a broken and contrite heart before God because of our failures, and he will not ever turn us away in our brokenness. We must know how lost we are in order to know how loved we are. We must know how little we deserve 
in order to rejoice in how much we have received. And this will move us outside of ourselves and free us from the need to always be navel-gazing and looking inward at ourselves. Because David also says in that psalm, if you read it, he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. You see how outwardly focused the repentant and restored David is. When his mouth is opened, it sings of God's praises. And when his joy is restored, it leads sinners to return to God. It's as though through his failure and restoration, God intends for it to have a benefit for other failures and sinners to be led back into God's embrace. This is just like what Jesus told Peter when he foretold his denials. This story has meant so much to me in the past. In Luke 22, he's told Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's as though through his failures, they would actually shape him into the leader and brother-strengthener that he is called to be. Jesus is not just restoring Peter to a new form of self-centeredness. He's healing him so that he can be a healer. He's calling to a greater purpose devoted to others. He's saying that you can't hold on to your past mistakes and hold on to what I'm calling you to. We've got to deal with this. So don't misunderstand the gospel, this message of of grace. It's not just about clearing our conscience so that we can continue to live for ourselves, but now without all those annoying burdens of feeling guilty and fearing judgment. No, a true experience of God's grace changes your life, demands your life. The pastor Tim Keller from New York City tells a story of a woman who started attending his church And she said that she had uh, gone to a church growing up and she had always heard that God accepts us only if we are sufficiently good and ethical. She had never heard the message that she was now hearing that we can be accepted by God by sheer grace through the work of Christ, regardless of anything we have done or do. She said, this is a scary idea. Oh, it's good scary, but it's scary. And Keller was intrigued, and he asked her, what's so scary about free, unmerited grace? And she replied something like this. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit of what God could ask of me and what he could put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it's really true that I am a sinner, saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. She could see immediately that that wonderful, beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace, it has these two edges to it. On the one hand, it cuts away slavish fear because God loves us freely despite our flaws and failures. Yet, she she knew that if Jesus really had done this for her, she was not her own. She was bought with a price. See, 
Grace is free to you, but it was infinitely costly to God. The cross of Christ paid the price so that grace can be free. And understanding this must and will profoundly shape our lives. They'll reshape us. So we won't be able to live in a selfish and cowardly way. We will stand up for love and justice and sacrifice for our neighbor. And we won't mind the cost of following Christ when we compare it with the price he paid to rescue us. See, the resurrected Christ in this story is saying to Peter, what I have just done through my death and my resurrection has taken care of your shameful sins, your, has wiped your past clean. And now I am calling you to something greater than how you served me before, Peter. Before, you thought that you were the greatest performer and therefore would be the greatest leader. But now you see that you are a desperate sinner, saved by sheer grace at the infinite cost of myself. And I will make you a great leader, but not because you're the greatest performer, but because you're the greatest repenter. Because that's what greatness looks like in my kingdom. This is what qualifies you. That you have come to the end of yourself and seen that you're not enough. That you have been restored by grace and humbled to the point of utter dependence upon me. Before, Peter, you were following me in your own strength. And now you know where that leads. So only now are you equipped to lead my people. Only when you are weak are you strong because God's strength is perfected in weakness. You failed me. Now lead and love my people. It's counterintuitive. I will turn your failures to shape you into a leader who will experience and extend my grace. Now, some of you are thinking, well, if God's grace abounds with great sin, then should we sin more so that grace will abound? Right? Paul brings up that exact question in Romans. And he answers it by saying, by no means. This is because Christ's language of love to us is grace and mercy. But our language of love to God is obedience. See, we receive grace and mercy from God, but we can't show God grace and mercy, right? How do we demonstrate our love to God? Through obedience. But this obedience must be rooted in grace and in the grace and love of Jesus himself, because his grace empowers us to live the way we ought, and his love motivates us. I want, I want you to see that this life of grace is so counter to, to moralism and so much religion that's out there, because if all we bring to God is our moral striving, then we're back at the same lie that put us in the need of salvation. We're stuck with our independent talents, and our, our own longing and resolve to make it happen. And we'll look down on those who can't get their act together. Or we'll be envious of those who get their act together better and quicker than us. See, without a proper understanding of grace, we are stuck with our self-sufficient effort to please a distant God, and that is not the life He has for us. His grace and acceptance of us it empowers us to live with Him, not just for Him. 
Our obedience is an expression of an intimate relationship, not a spirit of slavery and fear trying to earn favor. In Jesus' final talk with his disciples before his arrest, he makes the connection between love and obedience very clear. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then a little later, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then a little later in that same talk, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Jesus says, do you love me? Then live out that love by obeying me. I think a really clear passage to teach us about this is John, in John's second letter, he says to the church, love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commands. And this is the command as you have heard it from the beginning, that you walk in love. So he's saying that to love God is to obey him. And to obey God is to love others. Jesus tells Peter, tend and feed my sheep. Now this is Peter's particular call to obedience, that of a pastor and shepherd. But notice what Jesus says. I think this is helpful. He says, my sheep. These are his, not Peter's. Peter is called to shepherd, but all of us are called to obey Christ by loving others. And we fulfill this calling by viewing these people in our lives as though they are given to us by Jesus himself. They are his. And we are to love them and serve them on his behalf. How are you doing loving those whom Christ has given you to love? This is how we demonstrate our love for him. Matthew 25 says, when King Jesus returns, when he comes in glory, he will say to his sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we do these things for you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. We love Jesus through being obedient to love those whom he has given us to love. And loving them his way with generous grace and self-sacrifice and brotherly affection. This life with Jesus is to be marked by experiencing his, his grace and then extending it to others. And we experience his grace through his, and his love as he accepts us and forgives us and walks with us and empowers us. And then we extend his grace and love to others, caring for them, serving them, extending this glorious invitation of a relationship with him. Yes, we fail, but our failures do not define us. Jesus defines us. His love for us and our love for him. So I want to try something with you all this morning, but I'm going to need full participation, okay? I'm going to ask you a few questions. And if the answer is yes, I want you to say, we do. Okay? You got that? The more gusto, the better. Here we go. Do you love Jesus? 
feed his lambs. Do you love Jesus? Tend his sheep. Do you love Jesus? Feed his sheep. Let's pray. Father, some of us are in the midst of cowardice and sin right now. And we need you to look us in the eye and call it what it is. I pray that you would fill us with godly grief over our rebellion. Grief that leads to repentance and no regrets. Some of us are experiencing that worldly grief over our failures and we're trapped by it in death. I pray that you would change our hearts to grieve over how we have wronged you rather than just being filled with self-pity. Some need to know that through, though they have let you down and let others down, they can be received and restored by the grace of your Son and repurposed for your glory. Lord, I pray that you bring us to an awareness of our shortcomings so that we will all recognize our dependence upon your grace. Humble us, but help us to turn toward you for forgiveness rather than away from you in shame. And I pray that everyone in this room, though they have sinned and fallen short, I pray that you would allow them to make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who they are because you are with them. I pray this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.